What does emotional intelligence have to do with communication? Everything. Sitting behind your words and gestures are thoughts and feelings that you may or may not be able to control. You may not even acknowledge they're there. Understanding yourself to me is the first step to unlocking your communication potential, followed closely by understanding others. Dr. Ben Palmer is Australia's leading expert on emotional intelligence. He is the CEO of Genos International, which helps professionals develop and apply skills that enhance self-awareness, empathy, leadership, and resilience. Have a listen and consider whether AI is holding back relationships or effective communication in your organization. Oprah, Steve Jobs, Andrew Denton, Arne Doe. To me, these guys are masters of communication. The rest of us, well, mainly you, because I'm a pro, fumble our way through. Comical examines this funny little thing called communication that can either tear us down or make us sore. Join me, I'm an amateur comedian and a communication expert. Join me and listen, learn and laugh through the experiences of my very talented guests. Hello and welcome, Ben. Hey, Marie. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. Now, do I call you Dr. Ben or is that not the done thing? No, just call me Ben. (laughs) (laughs) All that hard work and no one calls you Dr. Ben? I don't know. I won't tell you what my partner calls me. (laughs) Now, you are an expert in emotional intelligence and your business, Genos, actually helps organisations to measure and train staff on emotional intelligence. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. And what is emotional intelligence? It's really a set of skills that help you identify and manage emotions within yourself and within others. It contributes to things like our self-awareness. It contributes Mm -hmm. to things like our empathy. It contributes to things like our resilience and our, our capacity to be a positive influence for others. And why is that important in business in particular? In business, it's important because the way we feel influences three fundamental parts of ourselves. Firstly, the way we feel influences the way we think and the decisions that we make. You wouldn't go and ask your boss for a pay rise or more resources if your boss was in a bad mood, right? Probably more likely to say no. Um, Mm -hmm. The more scientific term for it is mood congruent thought. And emotions play a huge role in the decisions that we make all the time. They can be a positive influence or a negative one in decision-making. Secondly, The way you feel influences the way you behave. If you think about it, where do your emotions show up? In your tone of voice, in your facial expressions, in your body Mm -hmm. language. And because of that, they're really fundamental to how we connect, communicate and collaborate with each other. And finally, the way we feel influences the way we perform. One of the most robust findings in the social sciences is that there is a direct link between the financial performance of companies and the way people on average feel. This is why organisations all around the world do engagement surveys when people feel valued, cared for, consulted, informed, understood. They significantly outperform organisations where people culturally feel concerned, worried, anxious, fearful for their job. So it's because of those three things that businesses are so interested in emotional intelligence because they want people's decisions, they want people's behaviour, and, of course, they want their performance to be as, as good as it can be. I think people more generally are interested in emotional intelligence because of that behavioural part, because it really relates to the quality of our relationships. And it's one of the things I love about emotional intelligence is 
you don't just help people be better at work. You help them be a better parent. You help them be a better partner. You help them be a better sibling. You help them be a better friend. And that's the, that's the real love of this for me. And what are some of the traits of somebody with a high emotional intelligence quotient? Is that how they say it? EQ? Yeah, EQ. More of a popular kind of pop psychology name for it. I just call it emotional competence, really, because I like mm-hmm. to see it and think of it not just as a point of view, but as a, as a science, as more like a competency, a skill that you can develop within yourself, like you can develop the skill of playing the piano. If you've never played the piano before, you have, you know, 10 piano lessons, of course, you're going to be doing somewhat better at the end of that than what you would at the start. So I, I kind of see it as competence. So what does someone with high levels of emotional intelligence look like? Well, not like Donald Trump, put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> they look like someone more like Jacinda Ardern, uh-huh. someone who knows how to connect at an emotional level, someone who's perhaps informal but informative, somebody who is good at empathising and someone who's good at projecting calmness and confidence in themselves. Now, you mentioned Donald Trump. Now he, and this is an interesting one, right? Because having emotional intelligence sounds like a wonderful thing to have that can benefit an organization and certainly is beneficial in leadership. But you can also be successful whilst also having very low emotional intelligence, right? Particularly if your daddy lined your pockets with money. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Exactly. Or he was elected. Well, depending on who you ask. He's a very interesting case study because... In some ways, Donald Trump is incredibly emotionally intelligent. You know, he is in tune, I think, with his conservative base. He knows what their triggers are, what their hot buttons are. And he is technically hopeless and popularly brilliant, I think, at communicating Mm. and at, at making people feel. So, but at the same time, and this is how I like, he's a great example of separating, if you like, personality from emotional intelligence, values and beliefs from emotional intelligence. You can have good emotional intelligence and use it in nefarious ways. And I think that's what he also does. You know, he plays people off. He puts fear into people. He, Mm. you know, he's belligerent. He deliberately attacks people as uh, ways of kind of getting what he wants, uh, if you like. And I, and I think personally in the 90s, perhaps even in the early 2000s, that way of doing business certainly was a way of doing business that could have mm. perhaps brought success. But in the long run, you know, I, I, I can't sign myself up for that kind of leadership. I think it, uh, it's yeah, ultimately not good for people. And I think ultimately it, it's not good for him either. It's interesting. I read that, I think it was something that you wrote. I read that the World Economic Forum in 2020 had listed emotional intelligence as one of the top 10 skills that you need. In 2015, emotional intelligence wasn't, didn't make the top 10 at all. What happened in those five years that made it such an essential skill? What's happening in the world of work is a real revolution, if you like, that's coming from the world of automation and artificial intelligence. So machines more and more are taking over the thinking aspects of our jobs, the aspects of our jobs that have traditionally been reliant on our IQ. 
And so what is going to be left, particularly as we look into the future, are these more generalist skills that have to do with how we connect, communicate and collaborate with people. Let's take, uh, you know, any thinking job, a business consultant, for example, you know, think about the logical flow of their work. You gather data, you analyse it, you come up with a recommendation and you present it to usually the executive team who then goes on to, to implement either some of it or all of it. A machine can do almost the first three phases of those particular aspects of that job very well. You know, IBM's yeah. Watson is making medical yes. discoveries that have stumped doctors yes. for, for many years. Yeah, so, you know, the world of artificial intelligence and automation is going to disrupt more and more the thinking aspects of jobs and, and emotional intelligence and skills that underlie our capacity to influence, persuade, empathise and understand others are going to become highly valued. In fact, Capgemini did a research study just at the end of 2019 showing that they expect demand for EQ skills to rise sixfold over the next three years, particularly in sectors like finance, insurance and banking. Wow. I mean, is there a certificate in emotional intelligence one can gain at TAFE? Like, how are they Absolutely. finding Absolutely. Well, no, come to Genos for one. We'll give you one. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. Uh, uh, or get a partner or a dog. You know, there are many ways of, of developing your emotional intelligence. But one of the things that's really critical to developing your emotional intelligence is self-awareness, is self-insight. If you mm. take 100 people randomly off the street yeah. and ask them, how emotionally intelligent do you think you are? Almost 80% of them will say a bit above average. And of course, that's not actually the case. Emotional intelligence like IQ is fairly normally distributed. So in other words, the vast majority of us significantly overestimate how well we do from an emotional intelligence perspective. And I could probably put myself in this basket, you know, you study what you need to know. Yeah, so an assessment or having someone who can give you feedback in an informed way about your emotional intelligence is critical to developing it within yourself. Most people are sitting back at work, sitting back in their lounge rooms, perhaps even listening to this, saying, I'm pretty emotionally intelligent, when in fact, it's not the case. And so are employers actually testing for this in recruitment phases? When we read that organisations want or will demand emotional intelligence as a skill, how are they going to determine if we have it? Yeah, so they are using tools in recruitment, they're using interviews, they're using role-play-based simulations and many things like that to test for it in recruitment. They're also using it to develop their existing workforce and I think an organisation who takes both of those angles is going to get the best return on investment from doing so. In a lot of sectors, even with high levels of unemployment as we're starting to experience them here, Emotional intelligence is kind of in low to moderate supply, interestingly. So even though you can look for it in recruitment, you don't always find it. As one executive said to me the other day, a hot body is going to be better than nobody. And what they were kind of <laughs> saying is, you know, let's use it. In But if we don't find someone, you know, we're going to have to take someone. And I said, yeah, and this is the whole point about using it in recruitment too, is to know yeah. what you're getting on the way in and what support you're going to need to give to people as you onboard them. And so sometimes we're using it to look for an emotionally intelligent person. Sometimes we're using it to determine whether it's something we need to develop within the person as we onboard them into the organisation. What are some symptoms of having a leader that has 
low emotional intelligence? <laughs> One is, what do I call it, like ups and downs, you know, kind of incapacity to effectively regulate emotions. So mm-hmm. you might get yelled at or you might hear a door slam, for example. Sometimes it might be a more inward thing. Someone just goes off the radar for a few hours. I, I think the other thing you see is a real lack of empathy, a real incapacity to understand people. Um, mm. So you see a very singular approach often to their leadership as opposed to an agile approach. I think someone with high levels of emotional intelligence picks up on the person and adapts their behaviour to get the best out of them. Let's take if you've got someone with a high need for control, for example, it's your emotional intelligence that helps you determine that you shouldn't micromanage that person, that you're going to really annoy them if you do. Someone who has a very low need for control likes being micromanaged. And, again, it's your emotional intelligence that can pick that up and say, okay, this person loves process. This person likes to know where they've got to be, how they're going to get there and so on. So, you you know, let's take another big need that drives um, who we are, our need for affiliation. Some people have a really high need for affiliation. They get their energy from being with people and connecting. And in fact, I would say you've got a high need for affiliation, Marie, having known you for a little while. (laughs) Some people have a very low need for affiliation. So again, a leader with emotional intelligence using their empathy is saying, "Mm, this person's got a low need for affiliation. They're more task-focused, objective, critical, Mm -hmm. challenging. They like me to be direct. They like me to get moved quickly to task. They're not interested in coming to the staff barbecue, right, and lead them accordingly. On the other hand, you know, I've got staff who if you jump into task and don't ask them how are you going and what's the world like at the moment and, you know, take that more human approach, you'll make them feel like you've got an empathy deficit and you're, you're, you're a mongrel, so to speak. Does that make, does that make sense? So <laughs> yeah. Someone with low emotional intelligence is typically not picking up on these subtleties and adapting their leadership style to get the best out of the person. That's the best way I'd summarise it. You know, I listen to what you're talking about and I think back to scenarios throughout my career where we've been brought in on a brief for a large organisation and the brief had everything to do with improving culture Mm. and improving relationships. And working in comms, our response was always, one that was founded in communication. You know, what can we do? How can we get these people to talk to each other? How can we get them to engage? And and how can we get, you know, people to meet others on other teams or other floors, et cetera, and make this company feel united? It never occurred to me that maybe one thing that could be done is to measure or train people in emotional intelligence to build better connections. What is normally the trigger for somebody or a decision maker in an organisation to say, no, this is an AI problem or this is something that we need to look at from an emotional intelligence perspective? Mm. It's a, that's a really great question. I think traditionally it hasn't been a frame that a lot of leaders have come at problems from. The best example I can give you is John McFarlane. Some people might remember John McFarlane as one of the former CEOs of ANZ Bank. When he took over ANZ Bank, he recognised that the banking industry back at the time, this is the late 90s, early 2000s, was very transactional with its customer base and he decided to 
run a classic service profit chain strategy, which is to be nicer to people within the bank so that they'd be nice to the customers and therefore customer loyalty and profitability would, would kind of improve. And, and he saw that very much as an emotional intelligence, not an emotional intelligence issue, but an emotion, as emotional intelligence as the solution to that. Indeed, the program was called Breakout. It was be, about becoming the bank with the human face. And the way they were going to do that was to become more human on the inside. And they used emotional intelligence and other things to help people get more in touch with their authentic self and to turn up and be mm -hmm. their more authentic self at work. And that strategy has been replicated now uh, many times. But, you know, they won Bank of the Year eight years in a row. Employee engagement went through the roof. It was an incredible time for ANZ, one that has never been replicated from uh, people who have succeeded in. Mike Smith, you know, was, was not there from an emotional intelligence perspective, in my point of view. So, yeah, look, and I think organisations are beginning to see emotional intelligence as a problem in their in their labour force, for example, in their existing workforce. And just as the Capgemini report kind of predicted, um, we're seeing very much an uptick in interest. We're seeing an uptick in organisations now lifting the emotional intelligence of their skills. In the past, it's usually been because of a very deliberate business need, like to become the bank with the human face. We've seen that now shift at the moment to we need it as a mental health strategy. We need it just because That's so um, interesting. care and empathy is so important. So that the need for a real thing to latch it onto is almost gone, if you like, and people are just looking around saying, we need to develop EQ, you know. <laughs> Let's get some people in here to do this. That's ins It's interesting because I, I was reading about this whole concept of psychological injury and how it can happen to you at work and the real impact that it has on, on people for, for a very long time. And it did strike me as surprising, uh, it's gonna sound horrible, that a corporate, that a corporation would care. Mm. Mm. Right? Yeah. Are they forced to care? Do they, they are. what is it? They that's are. They're forced to care, and that is causing a lot more organisations to take stock. There are many cases in the courts now, and indeed legislation, for directors of business to make sure that they have mentally healthy workplace conditions and a mentally healthy workplace culture. And if you don't, and you have somebody who goes out on a stress-related leave claim or uh, something like that, and it can be shown that you didn't have a mentally healthy workplace, you can be negligent and be uh, not covered by your insurance company. So this, this has caught the attention of a lot of directors of business and more directors of business need to step up and realise this need and this void. You know, we've got the Banking Royal Commission, the Aged Care Royal Commission, we've got mm. our 7-Eleven disaster. There is still disgusting, repugnant habits by corporates out there. And, uh, you know, I think that they're living on borrowed time and they really need to think about stepping up and making sure that people are being treated fairly, equally and with compassion, particularly as we come out of this COVID-19 environment. What about smaller businesses? Do they have to care? I mean, they should. I think it's a wonderful thing, but not everybody has that in them. I know I see it every day with a lot of the smaller, medium businesses. Some of them are just in a, in a mindset where we have to scale, we have to grow, and it's all about the bottom line right now, and it kind of doesn't matter. Psychological health doesn't really matter. 
so mm. far as you know that the results are coming in yeah and and look businesses go through different phases and are in different contexts and i get that mm. but um the data is there in abundance in large data when you look at large data and you know how to look at it properly you'll see that organizations who in the long run make it and make it great are those that have yeah. fantastic workplace cultures are just a no-brainer and it's not just a matter of the leader having emotional intelligence it's the whole organization yeah absolutely you know you've got to have people around you with good emotional intelligence just like in the old days you had to have good bright people around you now you still need good bright people around you but how do you bring that brightness to life where well, you need the oil which is really you know kind of emotional intelligence in this world so yeah how does emotional intelligence in an interpersonal scenario how does that impact one's ability to communicate effectively i think a lot of communication as you know i think you've even taught me this is non-verbal as much as it is verbal and so this is why emotional intelligence relates so strongly to sales performance because just like the leader who is picking up on the subtle feelings of a person and adjusting themselves accordingly in sales in interpersonal interactions just like this people who have got high levels of emotional intelligence are adjusting themselves to make that connection and to build that affinity and rapport and to make those the uh the spark happen if you like interpersonally yeah yeah so it, it's very fundamental to sales performance does it come naturally to some people more than than for others yes, is it absolutely. an innate skill for many absolutely it, you know some of us have it in abundance and some of us you know, don't. Let's think about John McEnroe versus Bjorn Borg, for example. When, you know, I myself never thought of myself as not having really good levels of emotional intelligence, but through studying the concept, we've really seen that it's not something I naturally have in abundance, something I've had to work at a lot. And it's something that's quite infinite. You know, the more you study it, the more you feel like you're just at the tip of the iceberg. And I've learned a lot of really practical little things to do that have helped me. I'll give you one little example. So my partner, Georgia, says to me, I'm quite defensive when she criticises how I'm managing our kids. And I usually respond with, no, I'm not. <laughs> and usually go on to, you know, provide long-winded, mansplain style um, explanations of the context and how she hasn't picked up on certain things and you know yada 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 so yeah um she's helped me step back and say well when you do those things firstly you disconnect us and secondly there's no learning so there's no reflection there's no real thinking about how differently could this be done so mm. for a while at our house we had two big words up on the fridge defensiveness and openness had two big words up on the back of the dunny door, defensiveness mm. and openness. And those two words were there to remind us for me, because a lot of this stuff happens in the kitchen as it does in any household, that when criticism's coming about how I'm managing the children to, without sarcasm, say, oh, thank you, how could I do that differently? Oh, but without that so sarcasm, hard to do. Course, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And yeah. it's really, it's not easy. It's not, it's not. But, um, you know, that, that's just one little example. You, 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 developing your emotional intelligence is something you've got to do on your own, but it's also something you've got to do with the people who you work with every day. Because ultimately, they're the best barometer, aren't they, of whether you're turning up in oh, an yeah. emotionally intelligent way, as are your children, as are your pets at home. I once was in a media interview and 
my client at the time was talking and what have you and the journalist was asking him questions and she would talk to him and he would answer as he would stare at his computer and try to bring these things up to show her and you could see visibly she was getting more and more and more frustrated and he missed all these cues and then eventually she actually slammed closed his laptop and she said I'm fucking sitting right here (laughs) in the most aggressive tone anyway the article didn't go ahead, which was a shame because it was with the Australian, I think, at the time. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, how did he miss that cue? Yeah. Because for me, he would look up from time to time and my I could feel that I was getting quite anxious, like if I could just take over in this moment. How did people miss obvious cues like that? You know, unfortunately, some of us miss them um, more often than we'd like to. But, uh, you know... It, to be fair, you can have you can be having an off day, can't you? You know, I, geez, I, as, as you were saying that story, I was thinking about some client engagements I've had where uh, people have, you know, sort of said, "What else have you got?" Or you know, like I just haven't picked yeah. up on the the subtle cues. But yeah, it can be it can be a real real problem, and I think it it um, speaks to one of the real practices I think of emotional intelligence, which is. When you meet someone and you're engaging with them, to really try and still your own thoughts, to come into engagements with a learning mindset, thinking, you know, what can I provide and what can I get out of this meeting? To not lead with your deck or to not lead with your your pitch, but to lead with, you know, a mindset and language around, you know, how can I be of service or value here for you today? It might not be exactly those words, but certainly... Mm. You know, that's the mindset. And I've learned that, um, you know, I do a lot of my own sales and business development. And just like elite athletes, um, I sit out in the car and I visualise how I'm going to show up. I think about who I'm going to see. I try and get myself into a mode where I'm going to be open and be appropriately vulnerable where that's necessary and and really focus on how am I going to connect? Because once you've got that connection, everything else just becomes so much easier. That's very true. And so this is stuff that people can learn. How? Go through an assessment, read books, get on the internet. I mean, there's so much stuff around how to develop your self-awareness, how to be more empathetic. Let's take empathy by way of example. You know, the first starting place for empathy is YouTube. Look Beyond Borders, the four minutes eyes experiment. I don't know if you've seen this, Amnesty International. Go look it up after the call, right? Okay. When refugees were fleeing Tunisia and other conflict zones in in Europe and going over the borders into Poland, Germany, Italy and so on, Amnesty International ran some initiatives where they brought people from the community and put them together with refugees just opposite each other like we're sitting now and just have four minutes of eye contact. And it's a great metaphor and it's great learning about empathy we've all got the mirror neurons and the biology for empathy but what we fail to think about is the context we need to be put in to make that biology come to life and for that natural empathy to occur and if you go and watch that video you'll see that natural empathy occurring between people just from sitting there and being still you look at someone and their story particularly when they've come from a conflict zone is written all over their face and it just you, you just start to feel for it. The other the other thing I really recommend people do if you want to develop your emotional intelligence 
is do things that move you emotionally. Now, I've got a little secret to make. I love America's Got Talent. I love Great Britain's Got Talent. I love Australian Idol. There's something about those shows that move me emotionally. I'm one of these people who cries very easily. And I love sitting down at night, not every night of the week, but some nights of the week, and searching for those golden buzzer moments and having shedding a bit of a tear and having a bit of a laugh. And, you know, that's what I mean. If you want emotions, feeling emotions in that kind of safe way, whether it's watching a movie, going for a walk in the bush, whatever it is for you, it's the experience of emotions that makes you contemplative, that helps you become more self-aware, labelling and defining the way you feel. These are the sorts of things that people might not read in a textbook, but I can tell you will really help you develop your self-awareness your empathy, things like that. You know, when, when we develop empathy at Genos, we, we sort of look at the four eyes, four minutes experiment. The Amnesty International video only takes five minutes and then get people to think about it as a metaphor for how they can bring their natural empathy to life. And they'll say things yeah. like, you've got to just sit there and not, and not be judging. You've got to be sitting there and just be quiet and not talking. You've got to sit there and just... Try and connect with the person emotionally. And lo and behold, it's not as easy, not as hard as you think. I mean, is it something that somebody who is older and set in their ways can learn and can they change? Yes, but the older we become, the harder it is to learn. When I say the older we become, I mean quite a bit older. You know, one of the things mm-hmm. that age brings you is maturity, as you, I'm sure you'd laugh. When I say that. I've only just uncovered maturity. Yeah. But with really advanced age, I'm talking like post-70, our affect tends to drop off. And um, I think every, every day, every year after 45, we lose a, a gram of brain weight as well. So, you know, it naturally does become harder to learn some things when we become quite advanced in our years. But it's never too late, really, to, um, to tune in and try and learn these things. And I really do believe it's important. I've seen it so many times when I'm trying to say in effective communication or even in media training, one of the things that I spend a lot of time on is empathy. Mm. And I was mentioning this to you before that I can sit and say, these are ways that you can demonstrate empathy. You've got to actively listen. You've got to be present. You've got to ask questions. And I find that some people take that quite literally and almost have it like a list of things they have to tick off to just get it done before they can move on. Yeah. And it's not authentic. No. Um, so learning to be empathetic, it can't be faked. Uh, it can't be something that, you know, your your PR or your marketing or your comms trainer or whatever can just write you something to help you appear empathetic. You genuinely have to be that way and learn to get in touch with not just yourself but connect with other people and care about what you're hearing. Yes, and once you've learned a process or something like what you're talking about too, you've got to hone it. You've got to finesse that. Just like playing the piano, you've got to put time and effort into getting that right and you will get there. And it's not about learning to ride the bike on the first day, but it's about putting the time and effort in to get there. And for those who are thinking about empathy, one little technique that I would uh, recommend, six deep breaths before you meet with someone. You really need to engage your parasympathetic nervous system if you want to connect with someone. So take a minute for yourself. Inhale for three, exhale for six or something like that, twice as long on the exhale as the inhale. You know, think about your yoga. And while you, once you learn 
to be able to do that without thinking about it too much, like you can drive a car without thinking about it, then start setting an intention to be empathy and, and use the self-talk. How am I going to be empathetic with the person I'm meeting? And then once you've done that, start the visualisation process. Imagine yourself being empathetic. What do you see? What do you hear? What are you saying? You know, do you know what I mean? There's a whole range of things you can do around that. I think everyone has the capacity to be empathy, unless you've had a brain injury or something in your development that's not there. <laughs> but it, but like I would love to use that in a meeting one day. Like our you seem to have a brain injury. It's out of us as we become task-focused, yeah. as we get stressed, as we get loaded up with stuff to do. And so you've got to relearn yeah. how to naturally bring your empathy out. Can you use some of that process in conflict resolution? Oh, this is my favourite topic. I think Australians in oh, general... Oh, it took me so long to get to conflict resolution. I'm sorry. No, well, I think Australians in general are inherently conflict avoidant, myself included. And learning the art and the finesse of leaning into difficult conversations, learning how not to leave unsaid things in your relationships is incredibly important and incredibly difficult. And, um, you know, getting books like Crucial Conversations would be a great starting place, having a framework, a bit of an approach to it. But I think it's one of those skills, being able to say, stop it, I don't like it, or whatever your version of that is, with confidence, with finesse, in a way that engages the natural empathetic response from the person you're with is incredibly valuable. I'm learning, I just pointed. Do you see the pointing? I'm learning not to point and to use the whole hand <laughs> The point as a way of saying, you know, this is this is kind of where I'm trying to come to and what I'm trying Has to Has someone do. said to you the pointing is not acceptable? Yeah, no more pointing. <laughs> right, okay. Yeah. Somebody, in fact, called Peter Fisher, who I've been working with as an actor, teaching me, you know, the kind of skills that actors get taught in terms of how to project uh, emotions, whether it's openness, calming down, things like that. So, yeah, I'm yeah. learning all these body language things at the moment from Peter and I'm finding that to be a real hoot. That's awesome. So you've nailed the, the stuff that happens on the inside and now it's just about how they manifest on the outside. It's great. Lifelong journey. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me tonight. That was really interesting. And a, a lot of the stuff that you covered and videos that you mentioned, I will include in the podcast description. So if anybody's listening and wants to tap into those, I shall include links in the podcast descriptions. Thank you so much, Ben. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. And that's Comical for this week. If you'd like to join the show, suggest a topic or ask me a question, hit me up on Instagram at Maria Daggle or email me, comicalpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. See ya.